Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live in downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey, here in Studio A. I'm back. Thanks so much to station manager Ken Friedman for guest hosting last week's episode of Tectonic. It was excellent as always with his guest hosting. And if you missed it, you can go back in the archives at WFMU.org and take a listen. I'm very happy to be with you this evening and I thank you for joining me. I've got a great episode with a very special guest. You know, in October we do this this uh, heck raiser fundraiser and a lot of the DJs and hosts are doing special episodes and I've got a very special interview this evening with Brewster Kale. He's the founder and digital librarian of the Internet Archive. Uh, if you're not sure what the Internet Archive is, we're going to go into it in some detail in our interview here in a moment. I will say, as I point out at the beginning of the interview, a lot of people uh, are not aware of the full breadth of the Internet Archive, but they may have heard of one part of it called the Wayback Machine. If you've ever used the Wayback Machine, where you look up past snapshots of websites, that's within the purview of the Internet Archive, which Brewster Kale founded. And uh, we're going to hear all about what the organization is doing, what they stand for, and how, in a way, the Internet, Internet Archive has a similar ethos to WFMU itself in my opinion, something I, I pointed out during the interview. Uh, and we are going to have probably a little bit of time after the interview, and I'll say something about the October fundraiser. And then if you stay to the very end of the show, I have something, uh, another little special, <laughs> um, a, a bit of special audio that's a, a kind of a, an accompaniment to what uh, Ken Friedman was talking about on the show last week. So uh, if, you're, if you're interested in these topics, the, what Ken was talking about last week was, um, was AI and, and, and AI generators. Uh, he also talked about robots. If you're kind of into those topics, you want to stay to the very end of the show. I'm just giving you a little heads up, a little, a little uh, teaser. You want to stay to the end of the hour. But first, um, we're going to listen to this, this great interview with Brewster Kale. Uh, if you're interested in joining in the live listener chat, it's going on right now, go to WFMU.org. <coughs> excuse me. Go to WFMU.org. Click Playlist and Comments, and you can join in the live listener chat. Here is my interview with Brewster Kale, founder of the Internet Archive, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Brewster Kale, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. You're the founder and digital librarian of the Internet Archive, one of the largest libraries in the world, which you started in 1996. Listeners may be familiar with one part of the archive called the Wayback Machine, which preserves snapshots of websites over time since the early days of the web. But the Internet Archive contains a lot more than the Wayback Machine. Can you give us a sense of the sheer scope of what's contained in the Internet Archive? Well, the original idea of the Internet was to try to be the Library of Alexandria for the digital world, right? the whole Internet. But we needed to get the web working and all of that. And a lot of this has come to, to, to pass. I mean, we've got access to a lot of stuff, um, but not everything. So the Internet Archive tried to fill the gaps Try to make it so, say, uh, if you posted something on uh, the web, even back in GeoCities days or whatever, then your work would be uh, would be preserved. But could we go beyond that? Could we do all the books, music, video, web pages, software? Well, kind of everything ever published and try to make that available to anybody that wants to have access to it. That was the dream of the libraries I grew up with, which were kind of clunky and slow. But we could actually do it on the internet. And today, 
I'm just reading off of your site, the archive preserves 20 petabytes of data. Oh, I guess we should update our, our website. Yeah, no, it's almost 100 petabytes now of of this book's media. So about half of it is web pages, about 700 billion web pages. We collect maybe 600 million every day. So I don't know, a book is, you know, what, um, 300 pages. So that's like 2 million books a day being uh, archived of a of number of pages. Um, and then let's see, the television collection, which is, I think, a way underused a television news collection that you can go and search based on what people said um, from U.S. television news uh, and also now Russian and, and uh, Ukrainian news, which is kind of awesome, um, is also huge in terms of bytes. Um, but the music collection, which I think, uh, you know, one of my real pleasures out of the whole uh, whole project is is growing large books. We've got six million. Anyway, a lot. The idea is to try to build a library of everything, everything ever published. Just to be clear about this, what is the uh, monthly subscription cost that you're asking for for people to access <laughs> all this? The, the... The the uh the take home price is zero dollars and zero cents. Uh, so it's absolutely free for people to come and uh, uh, look at old web pages, borrow books, um, listen to two hundred and eighty thousand different concerts from eight thousand bands, three hundred and fifty thousand um seventy eight RPM record recordings, which are kind of awesome. Uh, net labels, uploads. Um, anyway. I'm not. The the reason I wanted to start here, Brewster, is because going through the archive myself, it just I'm just trying to wrap my arms around the the sheer size and breadth and depth of this collection that you've put together, and it's kind of mind bending how giant this is. Wikipedia, for example, is another great free access project, wonderful project you can kind of understand how big Wikipedia is because you can see this just so many different entries. But with the Internet Archive, as you say, you, you have all of the entries in one category of books or music or TV, and, and then the, the categories keep going on and on. And then you have the Wayback Machine, which is not just the web, it's <laughs> how many different snapshots of the entire web going back how many years. It's... It's uh, it's hard to conceptualize in one idea. It is. Uh, um, yeah, like just the web. We started collecting the web in 1996 by taking a snapshot of every web page on every website by just having a robot basically click every link and, um, and then you know, add the uh, links it hasn't seen yet to a list. And it would take a snapshot every two months, which is as fast as uh, Alta Vista. Uh, basically refreshed its uh, search engine. And we've just been doing this every two months for 26 years. Um, but actually, we found that um, there were still parts we were missing. So there are now 1,000 different organizations, including the Library of Congress, National Archives, uh, universities. Uh, anyway, 1,000 a, a different libraries and museums that go and use the Internet Archive to crawl the web. And they get their own searchable collections that are subject specific, um, but then they're also put into the Wayback Machine. Um, and then trying to collect, you know, social media is just no no mean trick either. I mean, it's um so that those politicians that might um, become prominent now, um, what did they say before? And um, so those are the uh, some of the things that journalists are finding very uh, helpful, and users are finding it helpful for just seeing their old stuff. We, we participate in, in building this web that it calls itself having pages, but you know, in what sense are they? I mean, the, the, um, the pages change about every hundred days are either changed or deleted. So we've got to really try to keep up with it. If we're going to go and preserve the, all of this output from, well, now billions of people. Um, and so that was the ideas. Could we just build a nonprofit library that would scale to the opportunity of the internet uh, and help build the internet into the opportunity that it was really sold as? That's what, um, yeah, I don't know, there are 
100 core employees of the Internet Archive. There's many, many more going and scanning and lots of volunteers that are hitting the upload button and adding things every day. About 10,000 things are added, whether it's movies or music or whatever, by going to archive.org. Anyway, it's fun. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about where this all came from, because th this is such an impressive project. And I have personally made use of the archive, including the Wayback Machine, many times in my career. So thank you for that. You started the Internet Archive in 1996. And as I read up on your beginnings, I realized that you and I have a couple of parallel moments in the early days, which is to say you and I are both MIT alums. You're mm -hmm. class of 82. I was, uh, I was in the mid-90s. And we were both course 6-3, yep. which for listeners who don't know, that's the computer science major at MIT. And we both, if I'm right about this, we both left MIT for the internet with this idealistic sense that the internet could be a force for good in the world. And you have since then brought to the world this, this amazing resource. So you, you have made good on, on your idealistic start. But I wanted to ask you if you've noticed something that I've noticed, and I've been online for a long time as well, and I've noticed in the last 10 years or so that it's become harder to hold on to those ideals because there are some serious headwinds that we're facing online. Have you seen that as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The internet for me uh, was an opportunity to to build a game with many winners, a, a, a system where people could find their voice and, and have it be heard by whoever it should be uh, heard by, um, to be able to listen and feel connected to communities that may be geographically far away, that uh, we could make it so that you could go out there and play and feel like you're not being taken advantage of. I, I, you know, before the internet, it was really hard to go and be heard other than just the friends you could have around you. I, you know, nobody could get on TV. Nobody could get into the newspaper, but uh, the internet made it possible for everyone to become a publisher. Every, um, but there's been headwinds against this, as you put it, the people that are trying to monopolize based on uh, sometimes by being, building better technology than what was available in the open to go and corral people into um, little walled gardens, whether it's uh, the Facebooks and Twitters and the and the like um, that are, are so, you know, dominantly in our psyche as as things that we want to try to bust out of. But I'd say there's all sorts of other things that have, have uh, made it so that we, the internet isn't quite what we hoped it would be. Um, so if you want to sell something on the internet, it's really hard. You have to either go, you know, post it on iTunes or, or Amazon or whatever. And it's again, kind of this really centralized system. Um, so we have a, we have central choke points and once you have a choke point like that then they can take over more and more and more like oh all the hosting around the information that you want to make you know say you want to go and put music out there it's you're you're ending up having to be on a platform like uh spotify or a um if, if you're really i guess successful uh, you know Bandcamp or 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 the sound clouds um are available to you and they're good but how do we go and make it so that there's lots of different approaches. How do we keep the um, the open nature, uh, the welcoming nature, the newness nature of the internet going when we have these very dominant players? You and I met briefly at a recent event. You spoke at the New York Society Library in September. And one of the themes of that talk was the open access that you're mentioning, making the Internet Archive's resources open to everyone as opposed to a walled garden with paywalls. Another aspect that you said you're, you're pushing back against is the surveillance economy in which whether it's the companies, and on this show I, <laughs> I often go off on the big four or five big tech companies like Google and Facebook, the pioneers of the surveillance capitalist economy, 
you brought up that there are other publishers like LexisNexis and Elsevier and Westlaw that are pursuing uh, similar strategies of consolidation, paywalls, and surveillance. How do you present the Internet Archive as an alternative to that? How do you describe the Internet Archive as, as standing against the surveillance economy? The Internet Archive is a library. Uh, and it just you have to kind of remember what libraries were um, that publishers would go and um, sell their their newest whatever it is um, to individuals and to libraries and libraries would go and buy these materials support the publishers support the authors and go and put them into their collections and make them available uh, the new things but also the old things to their patrons and they would do this in a way that is independent of the way that the publishers put it out in the first place. So newspapers might have really been about, you know, reading the classifieds to figure out how to buy a car today, but it's useful over 25 years to be able to analyze these classified ads. This was not what that newspaper was built for. So it's what, but it's what libraries. So Internet Archive is a library. Uh, it's free. Uh, it's publicly supported. People donate to the archive. Oh, and please do. Um, but the it's within that framework. So we don't spy on our users. We don't charge uh, for things. We try to keep things robust. We try to keep popular and unpopular uh, materials as available as we can within the rule of law and kind of the, the, the madness of the uh, internet at the moment. So we're... Uh, we have a different North Star. So you mentioned some of the publishers. The publishers have become extremely powerful. Um, so if you just take book publishers, they've consolidated down to just a few. So about 20% uh, of the revenue of publishers comes from libraries. I mean, libraries fuel the publishers. Um, yet the publishers are now starting to say, we don't really need libraries. We're going to just go direct. So we're not going to allow libraries to uh, have our uh, eBooks in them at all in many circumstances um, or on really amazingly high fees. And if you uh, dare to just take your dusty, musty 19, uh, 20th century materials and digitize them and lend them one person at a time called controlled digital lending, which has been going on for 10 years for by hundreds of libraries, we're going to sue you. And they decided to sue us. So it's um, there's a level of consolidation of power by rampant consolidation of companies, but also trying to control way more than these organizations ever used to. So I, I, I think we've got... Um, bad behavior on the part of big corporations. Um, and the antidote to this, I think, is the Wikipedias and the Internet Archives um, um, to just go and have a civil society, to go and make it so that there's public access to the public domain. Right now, the public domain that is often put out by the United States government and democracies around the world is locked up in these database products. Um, and they're only available in the scarcity model to um, patrons of libraries that pay. And it makes it so we're really missing the opportunity using the biggest publishers in the world, which is democ democratic governments. So a new project, which I'm really excited about that's coming up, is going to be making democracies library. Go and take the pub bring public access to the public domain in bulk um, so people can build new commercial services that they want to or come and use all of these materials that really are belong to us. This is our library. This is our um, media. It, we shouldn't be told what it is we can do with the works of government or the works of people that have been out in the public sphere for a long time. So I, I'm a champion of the concept of libraries and seeing it renewed um, progressively and, and continuously into the digital world. You mentioned the Wikipedias and the Internet Archives of the world, and I would put WFMU in there as well. Yay! Uh, yay. Because Absolutely. We have a huge archive of past shows, past music and a couple of talk shows like this one, available for free for any listener in the world who wants to come and, and access those. So I, I really... 
appreciate your approach and your leadership, Brewster, in showing that it is possible to bring a wealth of, of materials to people with open access, no cost, and, and no surveillance. Um, on that point, by the way, you mentioned something at the event in September that stuck out to me. You said that you had to specially configure the servers, the web servers at the Internet Archive to turn off all of the tracking. Can you say more about yes. that? Yes. Um, so libraries have a long tradition of not spying on their users. Yet um, we know it's actually kind of hard to do in the Internet sphere. I, I Okay, just to, to sort of how to point out how bad this has gotten. So um, Amazon, um, you know, watches basically everything you buy. Um, and uh, I'm sure if somebody in law enforcement wanted to know what it is you've bought or what videos you've seen on Amazon or Netflix or whatever, they'd be perfectly happy to hand that over um, to whatever government was asking, uh, as long as it's within that legal uh, structure. Awesome, right? Um, but libraries have a long tradition of protecting um, it, reader privacy. So the Internet Archive, they, we got one of those nasty grams from um, the, the Patriot Act which is called a national security letter, where they wanted to um, get information about a patron of the Internet Archive and have us not tell anybody about it. Well, this is not within our tradition. And we looked at, oh, OK, can we just ask for a uh, uh, how do we push back on this? And they said, there is no way of pushing back on it. What if we don't do it? Five years in jail. Oh, great. What can you do? Sue the United States government. So we sue the United States government and we won. Um, so we uh, basically did that. It, and actually, it turned out we didn't have very much because we turn off the data collection as part of how our web servers work. So web servers get requests from uh, end, end users, and it uh, generally records a log of the IP address, uh, what was asked for, and when. It might actually have some extra things like cookies in there um, to go and try to help uh, web log analysis to be able to find out what's going on. We turn off the IP address uh, collection in general. Uh, we sometimes can turn it back on again if we feel like we're being under attack, uh, but in default, it's off. And we do try to keep where the region is that it came from, whether what country, what uh, what state, so that we can do kind of your general analysis. But we find that that's plenty. Um, so we just don't even have the data. It makes those conversations really short when people come and demand information from us, say, well, we just don't have it. They just turn around and leave as opposed to uh, making more noise. So that kind of uh, structure we'd love to see in more uh, servers, but it it actually is a little tricky to go and build that into your Nginx and Apache web servers. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. We are halfway through my interview with Brewster Kale, founder of the Internet Archive. He's founder and digital librarian. And you can hear in the interview that we are talking about libraries, both digital and traditional. And um, the Internet Archive does a lot to promote good behavior online. <laughs> I mean, in comparison to a lot of the corporations that I often cover here on the show week to week, really important and impressive project. Uh, we are having a good discussion on the listener comment board. If you'd like to join in, go to WFMU.org and click playlists and comments. If you're listening in the future, you can go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic. .fm and find the October 17, 2022 show. Let's listen to the, le the rest of my interview with Brewster Kale here on Tectonic on WFMU. Another thing that you have talked about, a structural difference that you've intentionally put into place in the Internet Archive, is that you said, we're designed to not be acquirable. Yes. Singing the praises of the 501c3 structure. Yeah, I think actually one of the, the best things the United States has done, say, 
post-World War II, is really move forward. And uh, the 501c3 public charity structure, I think it's kind of like a, it's like a secular church. And uh, uh, not, most countries don't really have this or not as mature a system as the United States does. And I'm not exactly sure why they happened. I, I think it happened because the monopolists 100 years ago, when they were growing old, they didn't want to donate all their money to the church. So they actually made these 501c3 structures and it matured along uh, and we ended up with some of the great buildings and facilities in um, in New York or, you know, what our universities, many of them are private. Um, so anyway, we have a tax advantage for these things. But one of the great things about these things is they don't have any stock. They have no uh, incentive for the um, the board and the executive director to be acquired. So if you don't, um, if you don't have an incentive um, to get really rich off of selling your organization, suddenly all of those that talk of synergy um, just seems to go away. Um, and these things last a long time. So the Internet Archive is in a tech world, and it's 26 years old. EFF is 30 years old. Wikipedia, 20 years old, I think. Um, these are organizations that you would think would be snapped up by the Googles or the weird, you know, private equity whatevers, but there's just no advantage. Um, there's no incentive to do so. Um, so we designed the Internet Archive to not be acquirable. And I did very well over selling a, a company to AOL called Waze, came before the web, and it was the first publishing system before the web. And then uh, Alexa Internet sold that to Amazon.com. Um, and you say, well, gosh, Brewster, that's terrific. You made a lot of money, so you could go and do a nonprofit. It's true. We could go and start it, but it's really been supported, the vast majority, based on libraries paying us to digitize uh, books or collect web pages for them, end-of-year donations, and major foundations. So, yes, I could get this thing started, but it's really supported by the broad public, which was the idea of the public charity. So, I recommend uh, if you're if you want to make something that lasts, make a charity. If you want to get rich, yeah, spin the dial and try making a crappy corporation that'll get bought by uh, within a couple of years. That's um, uh, sort of the the prognostication uh, that happens, especially in Silicon Valley uh, out here. Uh, but the five hundred one c three structure is a winner. How do your fellow Internet veterans, you know, who have sold companies, I'm sure you know everybody out there. How, how do they relate to you? Are you, do, do they think you're an oddball for not starting another one and selling another one? Because that, that's what it seems like the career path is usually out there. You make a killing on, on a big sale, go and do something even bigger, do it again. Um, I think that we were looked at as kind of strange. I mean, in, during 1996, this was the early dot-com boom, right? Remember the dot-com oh, boom? Oh, do I ever. You know, 1999. Um, and we were a dot-org. And people were like, what's that? And it was within the sort of the libertarian kind of structure that sort of a lot of the internet thing came from. They said, what are you in it for? What's your, you know, what, what, what's, what's in it for you? It's like, uh, public good. Um, and that was sort of a, either people thought I was just crazy or, um, or, or lying. Um, that was sort of a, a an early reaction. But I think we've proven it out that you actually have to make these things this other way. And I think there's a lot of respect at this point for the Internet Archive being about the 300th most popular website, which is kind of great. I mean, Wikipedia is about the number five or number six popular website. Okay, I'm a little envious. They're kind of awesome. Um, but at 300, there's still 100 million that are less popular than we are. And in fact, by going and working with Wikipedia, which I, I, I'd love to, you know, I can't expound enough on, on, on the win of Wikipedia. It, it, it's helped explain to people why you want the public sphere. I think the one of the brilliance of the internet was John Postel's breaking up the naming structure of the domain name system. So very few people get to reinvent a taxonomy of knowledge, right? That's Aristotle gets to go and do that. But John Postel broke it up into .com, .edu, .org, .mil, .net, and that these were separate types of organizations that thought differently. And I think he was 
It was brilliant, right? If you are uh, in the military, your idea of success is pretty different than if you're in the for, uh, commercial world, or at least it should be. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there's, uh, but if you're in a .org, what you're there for is different. And so that should reflect differently on how the organizations work what you should expect from them by going to their site. But if you get an email from somebody with a .org, um, it's maybe a little different uh, type of thing than uh, getting one from a .com. I want to bring up something else structurally around the Internet Archive. I've had this thought, and I've, I've heard other people voice this fear as well. They're saying, we depend on the Internet Archive. We depend on the Wayback Machine. This is an irreplaceable resource. Where are the servers? Are they on an earthquake <laughs> fault? Are we yep. one earthquake away from, from losing this resource? Oh, yes. The Internet Archive, it's been a little surprising that we're still unique. Um, you know, there are other pieces, piece, you know, WFMU does a great job of things. You know, there's all sorts of uh, others that do different things. But uh, the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, even the scale of some of what we do, we're still unique. Um, so we have to try to think about how to stay around. So what happens to libraries is they're, well, they're burned. Um, and they tend to be burned by those in power. Uh, it used to be king and church, and now it's governments and corporations. So that's what happens to libraries. Yes, they can just, you know, fall over or get caught in an earthquake and, and the like, but that's actually not where mostly they go. But let's, let's answer your question. Where are the servers? Um, so we... Uh, bought our headquarters building about uh, whoa 13 years ago um, in in San Francisco. It's in it's in a, a old Christian Science Church because it matched our logo. We had this logo for for 15 years, and this building came for sale. It's like wow, there's our logo. So we bought this building, and we use it actually also not just for people and gatherings. We had a book talk last night at the at the internet archive but also there are servers in that place so when the people that came to the book talk could turn their heads they could see the servers blinking that are the primary copy of the internet archive um and we have another copy in richmond california a partial copy in amsterdam partial copy in alexandria egypt no kidding real yeah and uh and a growing copy in canada so you want things in different uh, regimes in different locales. Uh, it's with um, that have different faults to it. Yes, we're we're in San Francisco. That's a fault zone. Uh, Amsterdam, I guess, could flood. Um, Alexandria is the Middle East. Uh, Canada, I think, is just awesome. Um, so if there's, uh, we can go and hedge our bets. I I bet. But it's more than just having the servers those places. You have to have culture around it. You have to have financial means you have to have people that believe in the in the promise um you have to have people willing to work for much less than um what you could in the for-profit world um to be able to believe in the openness to make it survive otherwise it will be forgotten um it will be left behind that's another form of losing it yeah you need you need to have that community of committed people who are willing to see it through for the next yep. generation this also seems to fit with your ongoing attempt to advocate for decentralization. You've been involved in something called the D-Web, the Decentralized Web Movement yes. for a number of years. How is that going? So the idea is we need a, a web that works a little bit more like our old publishing structure so that um, you have multiple copies in multiple places and you could draw on it from anywhere, kind of like with interlibrary loan. It's kind of magic. Um, and if you haven't used interlibrary loan, do so. It's completely great. And it's a use it or lose it sort of time. Um, but you can just ask for it and it comes from libraries from wherever. Um, right now too slowly, but uh, so imagine, uh, imagine um, speeding that up. That's a way to make the web work better. So we'd have publishers go and make things available, but then they'd be supported and served from many different places. And when I say publisher, I think of any web site, any web server. So could we go and make it so that if you're using your web browser, that if you request the 
homepage of the New York Times, that it would come from anywhere and nowhere. That you, And with cryptography, you can actually know you're getting the right page. You can go and know, even though it was handed to you by the person at the next desk over, um, you could know that it's the actual homepage of the New York Times. That's the concept of the decentralized web. Um, it's gotten a little confusing because of the whole blockchain thing and the scammy stuff and Web3 and blah, blah. But uh, there's no blockchain required to go and make a peer-to-peer uh, -peer backend for the World Wide Web to work. Archive.org made a dweb.archive.org um, to try to demonstrate how this could work on that kind of scale. I made my own website into a decentralized web um, thing. And it, there are things that are coming along. Filecoin is interesting storage with a J. The Internet Archive continues to have camps and meetups, and it's now spreading around the world to try to build a better web. Um, it is it is getting a little confusing because of all the blockchain uh, hysteria and money, but it's really a separate goal set to go and make a web that's more reliable, more private, that is still fun to build on. And you can make money by publishing on the internet in a way without having anybody uh, stand in the way. It, it, basically, it's an internet that works on the rule of law, not the rule of private contract. And that uh, distinction, I think, is starting to get lost now that we have these corporations and we have government that's not really keeping up to go and provide a level playing field uh, out there on the internet. Oh, for sure. We need, and I know we agree on this, we need antitrust action. Oh my God. To yeah. do something about. There used to be antitrust that really even kept the AMP uh, uh, grocery store chain when I was growing up a little afraid that they were growing too uh, large as a as a mega store. Can you imagine, uh, you know, Walmart or, or Amazon I mean, compared to the AMP supermarket, if they were worried about AM, uh, antitrust, what happened to antitrust? And how are we allowing, at least the Justice Department is objecting to having uh, the five major publishers, uh, some of which are suing the Internet Archive right now, go and acquire Simon & Schuster. So it's, you know, just four major publishers. Um, let's do that also to the academic publishers uh, as well. Speaking of publishers, it reminds me that often on the show, I feature books from smaller publishers. Yay. Publishers like Verso Books and Princeton University Press and... There, there are others like that that are much smaller than the Random House giants yep. that are out there. How would you suggest that smaller publishers relate to the Internet Archive? Because I'm sure they, right. they, they also want to hold on to the copyright of their library right. so that they can make their, their monthly nut. What's the best way for them to play in this new so world? What libraries do, have, have traditionally done, is they buy materials they preserve them and they lend them one copy at a time. It's uh, they've worked with publishers forever and ever and ever. But it turns out that in the electronic book realm, there's only a bunch of indie publishers that will sell books to libraries. It is surprising. They, they will, you know, the big boys will not sell ebooks to libraries. They will license them in such a way that they eclipse in two years or they oh, can only be 26 lens and they disappear. The libraries never get the bits. They get to basically be customer service departments for their pay, uh, for these database products. It's horrible. And they can yank things away at any time. Wiley just yanked 1,200 books out of uh, database they had already sold to lots of uh, libraries and it's just you know it's happening um but there are indie publishers that are are actually saying i want to sell my books to libraries i support libraries in their traditional function um seven stories which is an awesome new york-based press um 11 11 press ak press pm press out here in california uh they do brick house um, those will sell ebooks to libraries. And if any uh, publishers are out there listening to this, the Internet Archive wants to buy one of every one of your books you will actually sell to us. And there are many other libraries that are interested in buying, buying, really buying. Um, I know it, it seems so strange, right, to have you know, the Internet Archive, which is available for free, going and saying, hey, how about a little bit of capitalism, guy? Because the uh, the the big publishers are saying, nope, they want to have absolute, complete control so that every 
reading event is a permissioned surveilled event. Every person, every page can be yanked away. The book that you get could be different from somebody else. They'll never tell you. There's all sorts of bad things that are happening, not can happen, are happening because of this way too much control. So what should we do? Let's go and make it so that we have a game with many winners. We have many publishers selling their books to end users and to um, the Internet Archive and libraries. Let's have lots and lots of authors, some of which um, uh, will be able to make, you know, be popular enough to make money, real money out of this. Let's have some better deals for authors. The pittance they get from these uh, from the big publishers is uh, it makes it kind of a vanity project unless you're one of the incredibly successful ones. Um, and then um, let's have lots of booksellers. Let's have lots of libraries, not just one view on, on what libraries are and everyone a reader. So um, for Wikipedia, we went through and took all of the footnotes in Wikipedia, all of the, the references, and we're trying to turn them blue. So we, uh, we've fixed over 15 million broken links by going and taking the broken ones and putting them back into the uh, Wayback Machine. Um, we've found um, many of the book links and we turn those blue. And if it's a page number, it goes right to the right page. We've There's now a million links-ish in all of the different Wikipedias that go to a couple hundred thousand different books. We prioritize going and buying those books and then digitizing them so that you can actually see um, and go someplace from the Wikipedia article. So that, you know, if you're doing your homework, you're not really allowed to go and just quote from uh, an encyclopedia, at least not when I was growing up. So how do we make it so that you can go and do your fact check, you can go dive in deeper, find out what's really going on in books, periodicals, uh, old web pages. Um, that's, uh, that's what a library can do and should do. Your passion for this is evident, Brewster. You've been at this for over 25 years and you're not slowing down. <laughs> it's impressive. And I imagine listeners listening to this interview and saying, I'm inspired. Brewster Kale has got me out of my chair. I'm ready to go do something. What should listeners do? Should they go start a nonprofit? Should they try to work with the Internet Archive or something else? What, what would you want Tectonic listeners to do? Oh, go to archive.org. And it's it's really hard to wake, work work your way through the uh, the 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 materials there or or openlibrary.org. Borrow a book from openlibrary.org. Just try it. Uh, just search for something, and you know it, it won't have the most recent books. We specifically don't have the most recent five years, so go for older books, and just take out a book on you know basketball or whatever you want to do. Another is go to archive.org and hit the upload button. Just upload something, anything, just try it out as a place to be a permanent home for some of the media you think should make it uh, to the next generation. Donate to the Internet Archive, uh, edit a Wikipedia page, um, think more broadly, visit us in San Francisco. Um, the New York uh, Society Library hosted an event. Oh, by the way, for those of you guys in the New York area, the New York Society Library is this awesome thing. It's it's Ben Franklin started subscription-based libraries, and there are only 21 of them left in the United States, and you've got one in Midtown, and they're awesome, so don't go take a tour. Um, visit and love your libraries. Go and write good books that are worthy of, of being put out and sell them to libraries. Let's go and not allow the consolidation of knowledge that is really sort of whitewashing what it is we're all seeing, sort of this genericness um, that, uh, and, and it's poisonous, it's a problem. We've got to fight against it. Um, let's stay interesting, stay weird, be uh, not constrained by the institutions that want to constrain us. Let's go off and be as good as we can be. Brewster Kale, thank you so much for being on Tectonic today. And I hope all the listeners will go and support you at archive.org. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. 
My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining 13 minutes of the show. And then we've got a new show starting up at the top of the hour at 7 p.m. Eastern. The name of the new show is It's Complicated, or I should say it's a new show for the 7 p.m. slot. And the host is going to be Dave Mandel, great DJ and a friend of mine. But Dave is not going to be hosting this first episode of It's Complicated in the 7 p.m. slot. Just for tonight, DJ Scott Williams, another great DJ and another friend of mine, is going to be hosting this evening. And for those of you who are uh, listening to the station this week, you know that we're in our October fundraiser and this particular week is called singles going steady where the music shows not so much the technology talk shows <laughs> play singles and um, Scott Williams for it's complicated has some singles and I'm not going to give it away but uh, there is a particular theme that I know that you are going to find interesting and engaging as Scott's shows always are and i'm looking forward to seeing dave mandel when he's in studio a uh next week so stay tuned for it's complicated coming up at the top of the hour i want to also thank brewster kale from the internet archive for speaking with me and going through uh, in some depth uh, the the basis for his starting the internet archive and what what keeps propelling that organization forward and there were a number of things, you know, the, the uh, attitude of trying to make information accessible to all. It's a very democratic attitude, which I support. Um, he supports antitrust. And notably, a couple of times during the interview, we talked about the issue of surveillance, which is a constant theme of Tectonic, and it turns out is a pretty constant theme in the library world as well, not just the Internet Archive, but libraries in general, um, at, at least in, in democracies, uh, have a commitment, tend to have a, have a strong commitment against surveillance of library patrons. I know at, <coughs> excuse me, at the New York Public Library, uh, which is my home library, which, which I, I've always loved, uh, as, as I understand, they, they have a rock-solid commitment not to surveil their patrons, and I believe, if I'm correct, someone can correct me, but I, I, I think it's the case that they do not hold on to the records of what people have checked out in the same way that, that Brewster was just saying, that they don't hold on to the records of what people look up in the Internet Archive. And so when there's a Patriot Act um, nastygram that comes in, Brewster and the team can truthfully say, we don't have those records because we never collected them in the first place. And uh, I, I think that um, what librarians, including Brewster, are doing are serving as a <clears throat> necessary firewall against the growth of the surveillance state that's just ravaging every other part of American life and life beyond the U.S. as well. So thanks to Brewster for, as I said, showing us that leadership. Uh, and um, go and, go, you know, as I said at the end of the interview, go, go visit archive.org and just take a turn around the various categories of materials and, and see what you can find. I wanted to follow, oh, by the way, the, the links are all there. If you go to wfmu.org and click playlists and comments, or again in the future, if you go to tectonic.fm, uh, the playlist of the October 17, 2022 show has the links. It should still have the links. Uh, or if it doesn't, you can go to the Wayback Machine and find the snapshot of the, of the page. Uh, but I have links to the Internet Archive, uh, the Open Library, which run, is run by the Internet Archive, and some other links, links to the, the small publishers that we were talking about. And then there's a link to this new initiative that uh, Brewster mentioned, and I wanted to talk more about this. It's called Democracy's Library, but I ran out of time, um, and so I wasn't able to dive into this. But I can just point you to this link. This new initiative um, that Brewster is launching is to digitize the publicly available 
documents from democracies all over the world, starting with the U.S. and Canada, if I understand right. But if you think about it, <coughs> there's no commercial publishers that are trying to hold on to copyrights of government documents. There's no um, profit motive that people are trying to protect these or, or keep them away from citizens, at least not in democracies. We're not, not supposed to shield citizens from from uh, accurate uh, data and documentation coming out of the, out of the government. And so the, the issue, as I understand it, is that a lot of these documents and democracies, both current and historical, they're all on paper, and they're difficult for citizens to get a hold of. And so it makes complete sense to digitize these and put them in a place where citizens all over the world of democracies can look up the government documents being published by their constitutionally elected governments uh, that their taxes paid for and and make use of those make use of that data in some way uh, and so you can go to the link uh, uh, called democracy's library on the playlist just for fun i looked up <coughs> this thing just started so there's not a lot of documents as the site says but um featured on the home page is, is is an amusing document from 1981, this is from the, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, with, within the, the, the uh, Department of Agriculture, the Food Safety and Quality Service, and there's this little pamphlet with a, a very early 1980s drawing of a hamburger. And the, uh, the title of the pamphlet is Hamburger, Questions and Answers. And so, listen, if you have questions, listeners, about hamburgers, and uh, you don't mind uh, going through a, well, don't mind. I mean, it's, it's a charming little document from 1981. You can uh, read it for free. Go to Democracy's Library and see what else they're doing. And if you're in a democracy, whether in the U.S. or somewhere else, you can, um, you know, you can see if your government's documents are there and, and, uh, and maybe uh, ask around, see if you can get some more documents added there. I just think I'm, I'm a fan of what Brewster is doing. I think you can tell. It's very aligned with, with the ethos here at WFMU and, uh, and at Wikipedia. And I, I, I am happy to put the spotlight on good projects so that this, this show isn't always <coughs> me complaining about the latest offenses, uh, which are infinite. You know, there, there's, there's, there's too many every week from uh, the big tech companies and the venture capitalists and their, their vassal startup firms that whole ecosystem out there, the growth at any cost uh, mindset creates too many negative news stories for me to cover in a one-hour weekly show. So I do cover the, the most egregious of them, but I also want to spend some time putting the spotlight on really positive developments that are worth checking out. And uh, archive.org is the home of all these from Brewster Kale, and thanks again to Brewster for being a part of it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I want to say something about this October fundraiser that we're having here at WFMU. Every um, October, we have just uh, every every show has has one pitch or, or a pitch per hour for a couple of minutes, just to remind everyone that we we do have this fundraiser going on. We don't have a phone number. We're not reading names uh, out on the air. We just want to remind everyone that in October, at the end of the year, end of the calendar year, there's always a little bit of a cash crunch, and it's really, really helpful for people to pitch in just a little bit. You can pitch in 10 bucks, 20 bucks. Um, we've got a couple of brand new T-shirts that are only for the October fundraiser. Uh, you can get one, either one of them for 50 bucks. You can get both for 100 bucks. Um, and I would encourage you to go and pitch in. I have pitched in because I really wanted the T-shirts. And uh, you can go, if you want to uh, indicate Tectonic as a, as a show to get credit, it, it, it really doesn't change anything at Tectonic, but it's nice, to, um, it's nice to see people's support. But whether you name Tectonic or not, the main thing is to support WFMU. And you can go to pretty much any page on the WFMU website, but if you're on the WFMU, sorry, if you're on the Tectonic playlist, there's a little pledge widget up at the top with the, uh, with the dog cow logo and you can uh, click the Pledge Now button and just chip in a little bit. And if you chip in something for this October fundraiser and indicate Tectonic as, uh, as a show that you're gonna give credit to, you'll get the little robot head icon when you chat on the playlist. 
Someone was asking earlier, what happened to their robot icon that they had before? Well, the robot icon, um, it, it ages out. <laughs> You're going to get a robot icon for pledging to the October fundraiser, and then that gets cleared when it's time for the spring fundraiser. It's just the icon indicates that you've given to the most recent fundraiser. So, um, and you'll notice that when I comment, I don't have a robot head icon, and that's because I just feel a little strange uh, giving credit to my own show when I give to the station. I cannot bring myself to do that. So um, I'd like to see everybody else with robot icons, but I'm not going to have one. And uh, for those of you who have the, the little uh, radio icon by your name, that means you're a Swag for Life monthly donor. And I really appreciate your support, whether you give uh, to this October fundraiser or not. And, uh, and thanks to everyone who's already given to this, uh, to WFMU for October. There was one, I'm not reading names, but there was one particularly generous pledge. You know who you are, and uh, thanks so much. But thanks to everybody who has given in, uh, given, you know, even, even 10 bucks. You know, it's every little bit counts, and I really appreciate the vote of support from everyone who's given. Uh, that's about the time I have. I just have one last thing, as promised at the top of the show. But first, let me just, before I get to that, let me remind you, you're listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York, in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. I'll go ahead and give you your homework for next week. Some of you already know what it is. I want you to avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google and for the final little treat on this show, what I want to play for you is, well, I said that station manager Ken was talking about AI generators last week, and then he followed up with a little more when he had his Wednesday morning show talking about audio, to, sorry, text to audio uh, generators. You type in a little bit of text and it generates audio. And uh, listener Scott had a funny little addition to that. Let me just uh, play you a modified excerpt of Station Manager Ken's last show, last week's show. Have a great week, everybody. And that, <laughs> that was interesting, wasn't it? Let me try that one more time. And have a great week, everybody. Here is male speech with horns honking in the background. The text prompt is a man speaks as birds chirp and dogs bark. Guy, I'm trying to talk about the Hellraiser. I was gonna tell people how to pledge and how important it is. You're literally right in the middle. I didn't even get to start my pitch. Not everyone. Michelle's coming limping in here. Everyone's barking. They're running around. How am I supposed to tell people to pledge to WFMU with this chaos going on? You're unprofessional. I'm not. I don't even know why you get. Why am I allowed to have a show here? All right. Yep. 
There's a prog rock radio show on WFMU now, friends. <laughs> it starts next week. Well, it starts today. But the real show starts next week when a real prog DJ named Dave Mandel does the show for you. Tonight, it's, it's me, Scott Williams, bringing you the inaugural, the first movement, the first movement of a nine-month-long progressive rock hour-long program you'll hear every two, uh, Monday night from 7 till 8 p.m. What the heck is prog music? I don't know, but it's, uh, it's been lurking here at WFMU for years, but mostly, you know, just like out in the real world, Prague hides under mushrooms. It, it's in corners, in dusty corners, and it doesn't really want to comb its hair and come out. Ah, well, that all changed. That all changed when Sheila B. came along. Yes, that is now Sheila's legacy. She has made WFMU safe for Prague Rock. And uh, I do declare <laughs> this show is the result of Sheila B. And let's dedicate it to her tonight. Um, where are we going to start? What's Prague? What isn't Prague? Well, you know, um, what's the difference between Prague Rock and Art Rock? I contend that uh, your musical snobs uh, like us, when we don't like it, it's Prague Rock. When we do like it, it's Art Rock. Where'd Prague come from? Well, it came from psychedelia, classical music, and... Uh, I guess wanting to make concept records. So we're going to start tonight with sort of Root of Prague. It's arguably one of the first concept records. It's from Keith West, who is the singer for a psychedelic, soon-to-be proggy band called Tomorrow, featuring a guitarist named Steve Howe. Keith West tried to do a teenage opera. He didn't really get off the ground. Oh yeah, we're going to try to do prog rock singles. <laughs> get your jokes in. One hour of prog rock singles. How are we going to do that? Oh, another thing we're going to do. We're going to, uh, we're going to, Jethro Tull and Yes are going to have a race. I've got, uh, I've got a passion play and I've got Tales from Topographic Oceans over there. Well, why don't we get him, why don't we get him started right now? I'm going to run over there. We're going to get, uh. We're going to start him racing. Jethro Tull's passion play on turntable number one. And yes, it's Tales from Topographic Oceans on turntable number two. Boys, you're off. We'll be checking in with you throughout the program. I don't hear you, Tull. All right, sounds like yes is off to the races. All right, they're going. We'll check in. We'll check in on your progress throughout the program. First, music from Keith West. This is excerpt from a teenage opera featuring children singing Grocer Jack on WFMU's... Oh yeah, did I tell you the name of the program? It's complicated. Peace. 